Welcome to the DaVinci Hour podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Maxwell Cooper, and in this podcast series, I interview physicians, medical innovators, and entrepreneurs making an impact on healthcare. This podcast is produced by DaVinci Academy, a multimedia medical education company that provides podcasts, video courses, and digital textbooks. You can see more on our website, www.dbiacademy.com and our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash C slash DaVinci Academy Med. This podcast is sponsored by Doc2Doc, the personal lending platform designed for doctors by doctors. Do you have some big expenses in the near future? Maybe you're moving, applying to residency or fellowship, fixing up your car or home, or starting a new practice. Doc2Doc believes that traditional lenders overestimate the risk of lending money to doctors, residents, and medical students, focusing too much on the challenges of their financial past and giving them insufficient credit for the promise of their financial future. Check out Dr. Doc's personal loan options at drdoclending.com slash DaVinci. Hey everybody, welcome back to the DaVinci Hour podcast. I'm honored this week to be joined by Amir Bozorgazada, co-founder and CEO of a new startup called Virtual Leap that's working in the virtual reality space and you know, with a number of different applications, really excited to hear more about it and some of the neuroscience behind it. So Amir, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm, I'm super excited to be on the podcast with you, Max. Awesome. Awesome. So maybe give us a little bit of background, you know, about, you know, where you went to school, what, you know, what you did before, uh, you know, co-founding this company and then, you know, eventually how that kind of led into where you are right now. Sure. So I, I grew up in Canada, but been an expat uh, in the Middle East and Europe for about 17 years market researcher, games publisher, did a couple of stints of social impact oriented startups. Um, then I wanted to, well, I had an itch to get into the vir- virtual reality sector. And I started that quest by writing for a few years for VentureBeat and TechCrunch, really just scouring through all the different applications, trying to figure out where this technology really fit in. And at the same time, become a quasi expert of some you know, generalist sort, figuring out that the critical applications really are in two categories, education and healthcare. And in 2018, I co-founded Virtual Leap with my longtime business partner, Hossein Jalali. That's awesome. And are you guys headquartered in in Spain? I know you're located in Spain, but is that where you guys are headquarters or or are you kind of more beyond that even? So the parent company is actually a Delaware C-Corp. Oh, okay. But the, yeah, but the operate because investment investment for such a crazy moonshot sort of sector, in my opinion, the U.S. market is is pretty much the the mecca for that kind of uh, funding. So you have to have a U.S. entity at the end of the day. But our headquarters has always been he- in Lisbon, Portugal. Oh wow! Okay. And recently, we opened up. We're opening up the office in Spain here in Barcelona simply because we need a, a wider reach for talent um, in, in particular, neuroscientists, machine learning experts, game developers. There's a much bigger uh, pool of, of experienced people here here in Spain, but not too far away from the headquarters. Awesome. I guess one, what's the, like, I guess the overarching uh, view of your, the technology guys are developing. And then um, I guess, what was like the initial inspiration to start this company? What, what kind of problems were you hoping to tackle with this? Well, starting backwards, I, you know, I've always had phobias of, of like vertigo and, and spiders. And, and specifically when you're in Europe and, and international, you're going on planes a lot. It's not a very 
it's not a very nice uh, feature to carry with you, so to speak. And I, I began in around 2013, 2014, investigating uh, using VR for my own, my own fear of heights. And through exposure therapy, I found that it wasn't not only just effective, but even at that time with the headsets being, the VR devices being somewhat compared to today, which is not that long ago, but it's like quantum years compared to 2013, 10, wow, 10, 10 years ago. The devices even then were so effective for these types of healthcare oriented applications. And it was very effective uh, for me. And that was my particular, you know, the, the calling, the calling of the hero on his quest. The, the remainder of what I needed in terms of ingredients to get me to really launch a company was all the lessons I learned as a, as a, as someone covering the space as a writer. Very interesting. Yeah, I mean that's interesting how you kind of you you began with your own kind of uh, your phobias, and <laughs> and I can relate. I'm I'm afraid of heights as well. I I always get kind of anxious a little bit on planes still. <laughs> um, but but yeah, and it's it's interesting with the you know using it for exposure therapy. So I know I know you guys are using it to like help obviously do kind of like a cognitive workout, if you will, and and kind of build memory and cognition and things like that. So I guess maybe go through that part, like the educational and like that, that aspect of it, which uh, like, how do, how does like, what's the user experience like for that? So like virtual reality for me, I don't really, I'm not a fan for any use case that deals with escapism and fun stuff. I guess I'm really boring there. I, I really like the real world. And when I see VR coming in and having a critical application, not a nice to have one is is when it helps you transcend some kind of restriction in your life. And that's education and healthcare, like I mentioned, but also experiences that are, are about maximum 20 minutes. I, I, I think um, there's a lot of things that have to do with VR that haven't been researched to the, to the top level to, in, to my satisfaction in terms of what happens when you're there long enough. And, th and that really relates to why it's so special in the first place. It is literally the first embodied digital format. So your autonomic nervous system, you know, when you, when you show your visual sense, a different reality, it's like we're tricked into believe it's, we're not designed to live in two realities at the same time. And so the visual sense is tricked. It literally hijacks the autonomic nervous system. The vestibular balance system will be wobbly and like shaking your legs. If, if like you and me have any sense of uh, phobia of heights, then our knees will buckle and shake. So like, why? Because those nonverbal circuitries are believing it's actually real. That means like the applications for like PTSD, exposure therapy, uh, cognitive behavioral modification, when you're head to toe engaged, you know, how can you compare that to a screen-based device? Ultimately, just tapping and typing with your fingers on a, on a screen. When you use this technology on older adults, like even 80 plus year olds, we just did a pilot with even 90 year olds in Kyoto, Japan, uh, specifically for novelty, bringing VR solutions in that, in that kind of longevity sector. And they don't need so much onboarding, like they need to learn the UX of this, you know, application. No, you pick up a, a cup of, you know, water the same way you do in real life, because it's an imitation of the, re of the uh, real world. And that relates to why VR is ecologically valid. That's why it's multi-sensory. That's why the data will be better quality because of the engagement, the adherence levels in every of the 5,000 plus studies worldwide, always adherence levels are higher. Retention levels are always higher. And then I think what's key about our company is we're really, I think the only company at, at this stage, at least, who have created data infrastructure that's about capturing 
um, the psychosomatic data. You're not just collecting the psychometric data from the content, but also we're capturing the, the postural data, the gesticulation of the arms. Um, we're collecting even physiological sensors like heart rate variability and people dilation tracking. We have an AI learning algorithm that takes those biosensors and calculates your cognitive load, knowing if you're focused or not. So in a, in a, in a marketing company world, that's scary stuff, right? Double-edged sword. But for studying ADHD, for understanding the process of Alzheimer's, using this our solution for those applications, it's just profound openings of opportunities that no, no, no two G device could ever match. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, I'm wondering from the from the neuroscience standpoint, has there been any studies on you know do they see kind of greater or I guess longer lasting memory or longer lasting you know I guess learned abilities through through this more immersive virtual reality than like you said, using like a, you know, a 2D screen or a, you know, an, just an interactive device. There's a lot of range of different studies that are focused in a specific area and they can show a particular kind of, um, you know, uh, our own ADHD study that we just published last Friday. It shows that we significantly, our tool in, in, a, in an initial pilot study, only one month long, focused on university students with attention deficit, it significantly increased processing speed. It's an indication like that. We're so early in the stages that we have indications like that all over the place. Um, in with the FDA and you know in the U.S. market, what's really become mainstream is using VR for pain management. That's one of the the main flagship uh, use cases. You'll see companies like Applied VR and Behave VR. U.S. companies being leaders globally for that. Um, that's one of those areas where they were so well tested and it's already um, approved. It, in fact, falls under a whole new category the FDA created a few years ago called medical extended reality. And so, yes, the answer is yes. There's there's studies here, 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 but we're not at the conclusive edge of saying on a podcast like here that it's um, clear cut, agreed by everyone, but we're, we're getting there. And I think COVID really grease the wheels in making things so much more streamlined and the most stubborn stakeholders in those bureaucratic systems much more open to to accelerating the roadmaps for emerging technologies that's really interesting one thing you hit on there so so the fda has a new class for this you you wouldn't have to go through uh the approval process like you know for you know a medical device or something like that or is it kind of fall under the umbrella of a medical device i'm curious how that that works out it falls under the umbrella, but it's got its own like, you know, uh, jargon now as well. So it's oh. not just considered a digital therapeutic wrapped along the lines of, of 2D. It will be classified and understood as, as a breakthrough um, technology that is seen in its own right for certain applications that, you know, now has, pre now has initial uh, precedence that other companies can kind of fall into and start have to have, have a pro proper code for reimbursement and all those things are just happening as we're talking, you know? So I think the, the big challenge moving forward is not so much the regulatory bodies, uh, especially the FDA, because that's the market I look at always first and foremost, but the doctors, the neurologists, those are, those are the choke points now to really get them on board in mass. Yeah. It's interesting you bring that up. So you know, as you know very well, that medicine is is often slow to change or slow to adopt. You know, new, especially something as innovative as VR. I'm curious, what's some of the kind of pushback, maybe, or skepticism you've received, and I guess how have you guys overcome that? You know, I imagine part of it's the data you guys have generated, but I'm, you know, I'm curious, you know, what your strategy has been with that. 
you see a lot of the hesitation in in some use cases in which I think perhaps VR is not the the you know best solution necessarily because of the inconvenience of the technology in terms of maybe um, having to resource for the the hardware on top of what you already have or perhaps um, not enough of these studies have made those people yet comfortable because you got a gazillion of of the studies of tried and true technologies and then you're look, asking for them to relearn new areas where they're going to see holes in the research so it's not ironclad yet you have things like that they'll you know if someone doesn't want to use a new technology or learn about a new technology or for um change innovate uh if they don't want to innovate uh, um in that particular um comfortable way of doing things their usual protocol then they can find any reason right uh the pushbacks are can be you know it's just like it's just like in our sector of uh or any sector in technology world startup world when a vc doesn't want to fund you they'll find an endless amount of 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 uh reasons to it so um i think case by case it's it's really just about the neurology community for example in our case not seeing let's say a wave of these studies one by one coming in with those success stories yet it's happening it's it's like literally um that fda category for medical extended reality was just three years ago you know it's super fast so um every day it, it, things are moving in that direction but if people are not wanting to do it then you have to kind of somehow or unfortunately wait for the next generation of those doctors uh those those neurologists some of the people who are more on the fringes they have to be your early adopters and then it kind of you know comes in from the edges yeah definitely no that makes sense i mean it, there's some people you're you're never going to convince them like you were saying you know whether it's a physician if an investor and so on and but the but those innovative minds out there you know i think if you show them enough convincing which it sounds like you guys have uh you know you can you can definitely get them get them on board. I think that's that, that's pretty cool. And I have one other thing to say. You know, it, things the hardware iteration for VR is just so fast. It's like three, four years ago, the headsets were completely different. I'll tell you one one aspect of that. Before, the most popular headsets were actually what we call three degrees of freedom, which means the content wasn't syncing with your body movement. So like you can go on a roller coaster experience, but your body is not interacting with it. It's not, it's not, there's no external sensors. Um, and that caused a lot of unfortunate incidents of nausea. Because if you're going down, you're falling somewhere, but your body has no haptic relationship to that experience because we're so intertwined. Our, our, our you know, the, the way we're connected, we can, we can detect the most subtle of, 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 of an error between what should happen in that circumstance of an environment um, shifting in that way. Um, and then, and then now there is no headsets like that at all. They're all six degrees of freedom. If I lean, the content leans, there's, there's a complete connection, like in, in the way of simulating reality properly. And so the, the nausea is just so hard to hear of now, but those people, those individuals, it's only three, four years ago. It's like in a blink of an eye, COVID was like, what, when, when did that happen and go? Right. So they still remember that bad experience with some of these other headsets and things have just rapidly iterated so fast. So that's also um, one problem I, I keep uh, going across. I keep hearing complaints about something that to me, VR is like doggy years. So I'm like, no, well, that was ages ago, but no, it was just a couple of years ago. So, you know, uh, it's, um, it's, it's challenging when this, this kind of technology iterates so fast that people don't realize they don't need 10 more years. 
every next technology, like AI, for example, within five months, there can be rapid, rapid shifting of the land beneath us. That's really cool. I, I feel I'm curious what you think about this, but I feel like VR in a way a few years ago was maybe ahead of its time a little bit there. It was kind of this cool, innovative thing, but people didn't really know what to do with it or what to, and it sounds like, especially from what you're talking about, that has rapidly changed. And now it's, you know, that's that those avenues are becoming much more clear. One, and I'm, I, I did write for a while about VR and, and some of these major blogs, but one thing I noticed, and I hate, I've been trying to make a new affirmation lately to not be so negative about certain topics, but the the media are one hell of a thing in terms of when they want something to happen, they just, I don't know, if there's like some kind of group think thing phenomenon when i was in the early days of this company in 2018 2019 at that point they were like the, the media and the, the people who do like the market forecast they were like vr is the next gaming machine and that's all it is they didn't make any mentions of the use cases for serious uh, applications in, in the meantime very quietly the hospital the clinicians the the academic workers were doing it because it takes time you don't do shortcuts with science and they were working hard on those areas or just being ignored altogether because they're not as they don't have an agency a pr agency uh on standby to just keep on communicating blasting in the perfect way that journalists see it but journalists were like gaming 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 and then it wasn't hitting the forecast of 100 million users in like one year oh big surprise so they go vr is dead 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 i mean it's it's really a hard ecosystem when a lot of buzzwords like you're hearing the metaverse you're seeing web3 so much crypto before i'm glad i'm not hearing so much about nfts now it's just they love buzzwords and they love the the pendulum swing they don't like middle ground they love like death and non-death glory i don't know it's just like it, it's so you know when you're um trying to be sober and and try to do good in this sector it can somehow be a little bit less edgy and i think um the media was somewhat and is always um, ha having a big influence on that. Yeah, definitely. I, I agree with you 100% on that. I think it's it's what's hot, what's what can sell the most headlines, all that kind of stuff. And um, I think that's an interesting point. I'm curious from going in back to the science a little bit on the like this recent study you guys did with ADHD patients. What's like like walk us through like the study design. Like how do you actually demonstrate this really works? Like you know, do you have two arms? Like one patients that use a more traditional therapies and then ones that are using yours and i guess i guess how how do you demonstrate like what kind of metrics are you using to demonstrate that and i should have had my neuroscientist on this on this call you know the the, the thing about it is it's like a really short one month study it's got a sample of 25 students it was actually run with partners of ours uh in in portugal p porto ran it and the whole thing was was recruiting uh you know a sample of of, of students uh university students with ADHD playing about six games uh, only of our 15 exercises uh, versus a control group of people who who aren't necessarily diagnosed with with attention deficit and so the the type to you know the, maybe the the way we were using certain tests like you know traditionally like the mocha or something like that as, as the as the way to validate it it would be the way we did it this time but it was really about just showing that clear indicator that you know it, it, that this is the what I sometimes like to call like the Ferrari of those digital therapeutics. You'll see companies like Achille Interactive in Boston, 
uh, Lumo Labs with Lumosity also moving into uh, therapeutics. A lot of people now that now that in fact the Achille, I'm not sure if you you know, but Achille was has this game called Endeavor RX, which was during COVID the first game that can be prescribed as a medicine for uh, pediatrics for kids uh, with ADHD. Um, eight to 12 years old. And that, that, oh, that was the first time it paved the way. It was the first time a doctor can now prescribe a game instead of some drug or, or something more in, invasive. And so uh, this pilot study was really just to, sh- you know, sh- shot across the bow to say, you know, if that's the, the therapeutic of choice, a, a game, then you might as well use the most best of class format for such a game mechanism. I think that's really cool. The, the use of games in this, you know, um, I think, like you said, getting people to not only, you know, one of the biggest issues is, is patient adherence, you know, people staying with, you know, either taking their meds or, you know, continuing to go to therapy in the case of, you know, you know, mental illness or those types of things. Um, so I'm curious, you know, is that, you know, using the games, obviously that probably makes it more fun and interactive. Is that part of the strategy is also to like help people be more adherent to it long-term? There's been a lot of tradition in this as well, because one of the things in terms of the brain training sector, which we kind of, uh, you know, relate to, uh, it's all about a specific type of design called closed loop design. And so basically it's like really the games we create are pretty analogous to going to a gym, um, normal gym outside. And you have some, you know, machines for, for the back and triceps, some for the chest and biceps, some also for the lower body, the legs, people can, you know, pick and choose as they will. And the 15 exercises we've created are like that. And they're also closed loop design, which means you pick the weight level, but of course, in a, in a digital experience, it kind of just plateaus at your weight level. And then you go back, just like in the real world, you usually start off where you left off and you try to go a little bit higher. And that's the part of the gamification of it. And we call it games, but in fact, you know, they're not so, so fun and they're not designed to be addictive. Although, you know, you always have some people who, who can love anything a little too much. Um, the games that represent, like touch on your cognitive strength, because everyone's got some cognitive strengths. Some have cognitive uh, weaknesses. The ones that are touching on your weakness, typically you hate those games. You never want to play those games. This is always the truth. Like I, for example, we have categories like spatial orientation, right? That's another thing that you can't have in a screen-based device. And I really do not like spatial orientation games. I don't like spatial audio games because these are areas where I'm weak on. And in real life, you'll see I'm getting lost in these European towns. My wife goes, you know, really just shocks her. How can I just not know where North is? But you can see it in the data and you don't like those games. You like, you try to gamify just enough that the things that you don't want to play are fun enough, but Every game is maximum three minutes long. So it's also very short. That's awesome. Yeah, that's, I think, you know, making it enough where it plays to your strengths, but also, you know, helps you, you know, build on those weaknesses. Like you said, kind of like, like you do at the gym, you continue, you know, you lift, you know, X amount of pounds one day week, and then you hope to graduate to the next. I think, I think that's pretty cool. I'm curious, you know, how are you guys, is this software or is it more, is the device part of your guys offering or is it more like people can use your offering on any device? I guess maybe walk us through and then if they're like handheld parts of it as well. So we are software only, but we support all of the major headsets. We're agnostic to, to all of the ones that are popular. The MetaQuest 2, the Pico 4, I'm just using jargon here, but these are some of, there's only two, three main 
uh, players in the space. It's, it's uh, Meta, Pico, and HTC, and we support their flagship devices. We have about 50, with no marketing, by the way, we have 52,000 early registered users um, across five languages, including Spanish, English, Japanese. And these are, these are somewhat reflective of, of the, of the VR sector because it's an early adopters. So, you know, you, you have a lot, I think 90, 85 plus percent are, are of US, you know, of, of usage. And they all require the moment, both controllers. However, I think within the next six months, especially up to the next uh, device uh, that Meta is going to be releasing, I think we're going to start moving into an alternative of no hand, no remotes, and actually just hand uh, participation, which is going to be a, a really nice movement. One thing to note is that also we're experimenting to move some of our games from VR only to mixed mixed reality so your environment is still around because um the next generation of headsets you're going to see in the market are going to have dual functionality of vr and and mixed reality or or some people would call it augmented reality still that's really cool that's that's really cool stuff so i guess how does the business model work is it um you know if it i guess if it's more just a consumer like trying to you know use it at from to build their cognitive skills is it like a subscription model and then i guess from the patient side you know, and you maybe you're probably still working out the the specifics of that, but I guess how is it, you know, something like their insurance gets billed for or or their, you know, whoever, you know, if they're in a single payer, you know, country like, you know, that gets covered under that. I guess how how does that all work? Yeah. So we have this enterprise platform or you know, data portal that all of our research partners currently use for the most part. So MIT, uh, Roche on the pharma side, UCLA, uh, a variety of different partners, uh, mostly between um, Europe and the US, they'll license that tool. And the whole business model that we're looking to slowly implement, because up till now we've only been really monetizing based on a per per case, like per case pilot, kind of every pilot's a little bit different. Now we're looking into more of a SaaS model where you charge based on the number of users some you know company wants to use or some research entity wants to use. We're going to be introducing that by Q3 this year. At the moment, we don't have a standard model. It's really, you know, if there's ever a, cl a clinical group or researchers that want to work with us, we've never said no because of money. It's just it's just unfathomable to say no to anyone who wants to work with us um, on the research side, although we'll try our best uh, serving as a small startup. Um, and then, you know, with when it comes to how at the end of the, the path, like a a patient would actually reimburse. We have specific, there's one, one CPT code that opened up in the US just in January specific to cognitive assessment in this area. We could easily fall under there and we're working to do that. So it's really what you're saying is right now that's really in motion. I think only probably 5% of the VR healthcare companies out there are even yet attached to a CPT code or, or they're all working on it now because it's just opened up and specifically ones for VR. That's really cool. Yeah, that I think that the way that plays out is going to be really interesting how the whole reimbursement, you know, obviously the FDA has gotten on board with this, you know, relatively rapidly, probably not as rapidly as you wanted to, but, but uh, you know, has gotten on board to, you know, have its own classification. And then I, I imagine, you know, if the FDA gets on board, the payers will hopefully soon follow suit with that. Um, I think that's pretty cool. Um, I'm curious, where, where are you guys at in terms of like, you know, involving like clinicians involved, I guess, like, you know, obviously you probably have like a advisory board or things like that, or physicians you consult with, I guess, how, how has that perspective helped you guys with the development of this, uh, you know, having that, that clinical pers perspective? 
Yeah. So everything on our on our side is initially developed and and quite the product owner really is a neuroscientist. And that neuroscientist designs the path and then collaborates with a game development team. But during that path, even from the the articulation of what to create, um, then going into prototyping and every one of those stages, we are always more or less working side by side with one of our scientific advisors, for example, Walter Greenleaf at Stanford VR or Albert Skip Rizzo at UCLA. Both gentlemen have been doing VR healthcare for groups like the VA since literally the 90s. So, you know, they do tolerability tests initially. We want to make sure we design games so they adapt, whether you're sitting in mobility restricted or standing all in place. Do you have colorblindness? We have settings for that. Do you want to change the font size? We have settings for that. Everything is accessibility first in this whole process. But like you say, it's 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 always also in 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 close correspondence to groups like the Pacific Brain Health Center and and a variety of these people who've actually I don't want to say it's sad, but it's weird in a way because VR has actually been around in multiple loops for quite some time. And for when they look at what we're doing in 2023, it's kind of sometimes like a Groundhog Day situation where it, where right now, knock on wood, is the time where ultimately the technology is sleek and sexy enough, light enough, fast enough, cordless enough. All these things have just kind of gone to the next level, but they have seen those iterations, those initial attempts. They've seen the wrongs. They can see it a mile away what you're doing because they've been through three other iterations. That's really interesting. Yeah. And it's interesting. You, you mentioned how your one collaborator is working with the, has worked with the VA for a long time. Cause I imagine sure. that would, the, you know, the veterans, um, as you probably are aware, you know, there's, you know, obviously, you know, high incidence of PTSD and other, you know, mental illness uh, and mental health issues that they, they have to deal with given their, you know, unique experiences. So I, I would imagine VR would have, you know, tons of applications in that regard and, and also a population that could probably really benefit uh, from it as well. Yeah. Well, the VA has been really, really innovative and really fast acting to work with VR companies. They just made a big partnership with uh, that pain management solution by applied VR that I mentioned to you. Uh, They were the first one that the FDA, um, you know, gave that status. And now they have a partnership with the VA working closely with them. And we, um, for our part, are working closely with the VA healthcare system in San Francisco, particularly through the youth youth, uh, um, CSF um, addiction research uh, group. So they're all about addiction and how addiction causes through PTSD is kind of like the, the macro causation. Addiction causes um, an acceleration of cognitive deterioration. You know, and that's the angle we're going. We just uh, are submitting another grant application with them right now. We work with uh, uh, an amazing individual who's been even trying to use VR before we ever were around in this area of cognitive training and so on. Uh, David Pennington uh, from their addiction research program. But we've been more or less courting them for about four years. So we also know along with them, you know, even when you want to work inside the VA, you and I've learned so much. It is, it is in fact the biggest healthcare system in the whole world. And I, you know, no one really knows that uh, from the outside, but it's, it's a jungle. If you're outside, you know, forget about it. You need, you need to understand the insides and then work with the champions that you do, but it's looking really great. And that, that, that partnership that I just mentioned, it only happened about, or at least it only, it was announced two months ago. 
That's amazing. That's amazing. It's interesting you bring up addiction medicine as well, because I would think VR would have a lot of applications for that, you know, potentially. I, I'm curious, you know, how do you see that working in? Do you guys have any like of your, you know, exercises or games uh, that, you know, kind of you're developing or have currently available for that that aspect as well? Well, it's funny because we we actually with David created a prototype of, of a different product. We call it Codename Volition. And it is basically a, a cognitive behavioral modification exercise specific to alcohol uh, abuse. So uh, it's it's really about uh, gamifi- gamifying an experience of good choices and bad choices and a scoreboard and and other factors like bringing in the noise around a bar, uh, pe- a bartender talking to you, uh, things that can trigger you. So you really try to create an environment with a simplified game mechanism, but you focused on all of the environmental triggers that can serve as cues to get you, uh, you know, in the wrong, uh, following the wrong um, uh, habitual uh, frame of mind that gets you falling back into it rather than trying to create and build up those those new kind of that bridge um, into into you know positive behavior. So we created it, and it's actually a pretty polished uh, MVP or or, uh, or pilot um, prototype. But we haven't actually mentioned it. In fact, you're the first person who just suddenly. That's awesome. Yeah, no, that's I imagine that's something you know because that's something people, as you know, struggle with for you know you know a long time. Some people struggle their you know their whole lives with it, unfortunately. And yeah. so I think, and there's not you know obviously there you know AA and and other programs like that are. I've, you know, been great and been very helpful, but I think, you know, this is a space where I think there's, there's, there's room for definitely improved, you know, therapies. And I think, you know, from what you're describing, that's, that's an amazing application for VR and and, an opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, so Skip Rizzo, Albert Skip Rizzo of UCLA, PTSD, uh, VR simulations, um, creating it for the VA in particular, why is that great? Because again, you can go and create exposure therapy environments where you literally recreate the full kind of environment of that initial trauma and try to build up, you can you know, make it more intense, less intense, completely controlled environment. So when you have that controlled environment, when you have it so rich in terms of uh, triggering you from multiple angles, but having being able to control each of those angles in you know, customized ways, VR is a godsend for these types, I think, of treatments. And more or less, hopefully one day, something that not, not necessarily only has to be applied as a prescribable solution, but something that we provide tools to create those strong neural pathways simply available to anybody. And, you know, I don't think we're that far away from that. That's really cool. I'm curious from like just the the standard like cognition standpoint, like how, you know, what kind of data have you guys seen with like, you know, someone's being able to, you know, remember, you know, five items versus, you know, a hundred or something like that. And I realize I'm probably being facetious there, but, you know, you know, I guess, I guess what type of like, how, like how good can we actually get potentially? Cause you know, you always hear people's, you know, neuroscientists say we only use, you know, what I right. it's like 10% of our brain or something like that. I'm curious, you know, from like the yeah. cognitive, you know, improvement standpoint, where, where are you guys at with that? Well, see my point of view, in fact, and I, I think nothing on our side has really shown anything to contradict this. I, it, when we talk about whether playing our games can actually, the holy grail is, is called far transfer. You know, it, it's whether playing these games will help me better remember my grocery list or do my you know calculations in my head faster and all these types of things. And to, to my experience so far, talking about, you know, what we've done and our research and the broader research out there, 
I'm pretty convinced that there is no such thing as far transfer beyond a certain level for a generally healthy individual in terms of their optimum. If you're sleeping well, have a good social life, the most key thing I think is uh, regular exercise, all these kind of things that are tried and true. I think our, our great grandparents could have told us these things, right? Get some fresh air as much as possible, fresh sunlight, all these things, eat, you know, eat fruits, eat a Mediterranean diet. I mean, it's just so common sense. I think if you do that, you are functioning at a pretty optimum level for you. Where I think it's a therapeutic is when you are in a you are experiencing cognitive deficit due to lack of sleep, due to um, depression, any mental health disorder, addiction, lifestyle factors, or uh, you know a disorder like ADHD, or you're one of the seventy percent of people who. Uh, when um, you know being treated by chemotherapy, you have chemo brain or whatever percent I think I might forget what percentage are getting long COVID. Anything that's memory fog related, that's kind of like a condition, a circumstance, a traumatic brain injury, recovery, rehabilitation. I am very convinced uh, in terms of the literature that that's where we serve as a therapeutic. But unfortunately, I have to say to all those people, I, I was one of them like 20 years ago playing uh, these brain training apps, thinking it's going to give me the edge. I don't think that's the way. I think um, where it can give us the edge, hopefully, is becoming stronger where we're weak because we just avoid those weaknesses. We glorify our strengths. And I think that's not actually a weakness necessarily that needs to be as weak as that. It could be a little bit higher if we just didn't want to avoid our Achilles heel. That's uh, Yeah, that's really interesting. It's it's There's no, um, I guess there's no magic pill after all. <laughs> Unfortunately um, not. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm curious from your guys stage, I guess, where are you at in terms of like, uh, funding and those types of things and like where you're at in the development process and like, where are you hoping to go in the next 12 months uh, per se? Yeah, it's a, it's a hard, hard one to be honest. The U S market has been such a big part of everything we've focused on. And, and currently there's a, there's a sort of, uh, fear among investors, the fears of a recession in general, there's so much, just like the media flocking in one way, when there's any blood sniffed out by any of these different groups that ultimately startups are relying on, it 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 happens in mass. And there's a there's a lot of VR healthcare companies that are suffering at the moment. We're we're having to rejig and create a whole new commercialization strategy. We've raised about 1.5 million to date, and we've been looking to figure out the right way to approach our next round. But at the moment, we're focusing more on commercialization, selling our product as it is, because it's on the market, there is organic demand, there are clinics and, and groups that are interested in it. And, and that's our focus, as well as grant partnerships, people who are on this, uh, listen to your podcast, any clinicians, academics, we love relationships with those groups where we can go and apply for federal grants and, and private grants to, to fund um, the research, because ultimately, that's that's what the most important part for us is. Yeah, that's really cool. And in, in many ways, you know, grant funding for many reasons is 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 often the best funding. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's I think that's that's a really cool and you uh, strategy you guys are working on with with you know really being a research driven, a data driven company, you know, and then and then obviously having grant funding to help you guys do that. I guess as as we close out here, I ask everybody when you're not when you're not building uh, you know this VR company, what what do you do in your spare time? How do you how do you find that balance if there is one? Well, you know one one thing one thing that's great about being in Europe, and what's what's not good is being a startup in Europe with a mentality from the U.S. and Canada. Okay, like I, I can 
I think I, I'm not very popular out here in terms of, you know, uh, certain certain American uh, philosophies that are just built into me in terms of, uh, you know, how we approach running a startup. Uh, over here, it's much more employee centric, right? You try You can't really let go of people so easily in systems that are a little bit much more leaning, not a little bit, much more leaning on the socialism side. So working and business, there's a lot of cons, but what is certainly a pro is, is an endless thing, uh, you know, things to do in terms of, in terms of hiking for my, my part, um, you know, going to theaters, uh, uh, not, not, not cinemas, but like actual uh, live theaters, a lot of the things that in Europe are, you know, the arts, um, being able to travel and get lost in, 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 very very uh, windy towns where my spatial orientation skills literally do get me lost um you know there's a lot of novelty uh being uh, in this region yeah no that's really cool I, i'm sure you know there's there's a plethora of things to do that, that that's that's awesome yeah it's, you know it, you made an interesting point there about the the difference in the startup environment in the us versus europe uh i'm curious you know is that you know, do you see things changing in that regard? It seems, are there more startups popping up in, in the European space? You know, I guess for the, the American listeners out there that are maybe curious about how, how things look in that, in that realm. See, like I, 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 didn't I say in the beginning of the startup or maybe I didn't, um, that I want to be nice. I don't want to say negative things. I just, you know, it depends if it's like a certain stage where they're already making good money, these kind of things, it's a different uh, situation. But when you're an early stage startup, I really do think uh, the investors in Europe are very risk averse. Um, the startups here are based on that culture. Um, it's really hard to pivot uh, because of employment rights and all these types of things. The only exception is the UK. And funny enough, they left <laughs> Europe technically. So it's it's the UK is the only exception. You'll find that the northern uh, startup scene um, perform better than the Southern ones. I think there's a lot more propaganda by the startup groups out here. I think you have to be very careful um, for early stage kind of investments out here across the Atlantic. I think personally, if you're going to invest in this part of the world, then I would focus first and foremost in in the UK where the, the legal uh, writing is, is in English. Uh, it's really interesting, really interesting, really interesting to watch that too. Amir, thank you so much for for taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us. I guess the last thing is, wh- where can people learn more about uh, Virtual Leap and you know what you guys are working on if they want to get involved how, and collaborate? You know, what are the best ways for people to do that? Like, I am a hardcore user of of LinkedIn, so please add me on LinkedIn, Amir Bozorgzade. Uh, you can email me at Amir A M I R at virtualleap.com, virtualleap.com. Our website is really comprehensive at this moment in terms of outlining in pretty good detail all of the games, the science behind them, the enterprise tools. But please feel, uh, you know, feel free to reach out to me directly. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you, Amir, so much. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DaVinci Hour podcast presented by DaVinci Academy. Please be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow the podcast on your podcast platform of choice to catch the latest episodes. Please leave a comment or review and share it with a friend. Lastly, you can find all of our podcasts, video courses, and books on our website, dviacademy.com. Thank you for listening.